Hello and welcome to the Antifada. This is Sean KB here. I'm with Jamie Peck. Hello. And this is a very special episode for us. It's no secret that our podcast orientation is towards Marx, but especially the newer readings of Marx that came out of materials first published in the second half of the 20th century, well after capital M Marxism had hardened into a stale state ideology. Our politics on the Antifada come out of a fidelity to Marx's mature critique, but an openness when it comes to the political orthodoxies of the 19th and 20th centuries. So who better to bring on the podcast than Michael Heinrich, educator, researcher, and author of several very popular German texts on Marx's capital, which are, being, which are in the process of being published uh, in English for the very first time. These texts include the biography Karl Marx and the Birth of the Modern World, uh, also, an introduction to the three volumes of Marx's Capital, uh, how to read Marx is already available in English, by the way. Yeah, both of those first two are. And then uh, being published very soon is how to read Marx's Capital. Uh, and then after that, Science of Value, all of these having been translated by our friend, friend of the show, Al Lacascio, and out sometimes this, sometime this year. So anyways, Michael Heinrich, thanks for being with us and welcome to the show. Yes, thanks to invite me. Very happy to finally have you on. Um, first question here is um, you have, as I understand it, you have a background in uh, STEM, so in, in science and math and technology. How did you get into Karl Marx and his mature critique? <laughs> um, it was not so that I first uh, did my mathematics uh, study and then came to Marx. I came to Marx very early as a pupil at school in early 70s, mm. when the German schools were influenced by the last um, movings of the German students' movement. So I, I was involved in political discussions in left uh, pupils' uh, groups, and I started to, um, to read Marx. But on the same, at the same time, I, I was very fascinated by theoretical physics. And so later at the university, I studied both and I reached a degree in mathematics and one in uh, political science. Now, your introduction to the three volumes has gone through, you had to correct me on this in the email, it's gone through 15 printings in Germany, in German, and has been translated into nine languages as reading groups have popped up all over the world uh, since the financial crash of 2008. So big question here, but why should we read Marx? Isn't he just a dusty old 19th century economist? <laughs> <laughs> okay, this in this podcast is a very bad question. <laughs> you already uh, said that uh, it's not a secret that you are oriented in, yeah. in Marxism and so... I think it is very clear we read Marx because we uh, expect that uh, Marx's analysis still has to say something important about uh, contemporary capitalism, no matter that this analysis uh, now is around 150 years old. In so far, um, we can, can say, we can discuss why this old analysis is still relevant. And I think it uh, has to do with the level of abstraction of this um, analysis. 
it is not just the British capitalism of Marx's times which is uh, analyzed, but it is what Marx uh, at the end of volume three of Capital uh, named the ideal average of the capitalist mode of production. Ideal average, it's um, a very interesting term, not an empirical uh, average, taking the five most advanced countries and looking what uh, they have in common. No, ideal average means what necessarily belongs to capitalism. This Marx tried to analyze, and I would say, let us say in at least 90%, he was correct. He, he analyzed this ideal average. And this we can take now as a basis for our own research. However, it is important to stress it's only the basis. We want to analyze a concrete capitalist formation. And for this, the, the knowledge about the ideal average, of course, is not enough. It is a kind of core we, we need, but of course we have to extend this analysis in, in every time uh, to, to come to the concrete analysis of the existing capitalism. On that note, um, you've written a whole book called Science of Value about the innovations of Marx's project vis-a-vis uh, -vis what we might call classical political economy or economics in layman's terms. Um, what does critique of political economy mean in practice? Um, how is this a break from political economies, quote, theoretical field, which again, I will call what most people understand as economics. Um, did Marx have a labor theory of value? <laughs> okay, I realize that are... might be several questions in one. <laughs> exactly. Several questions in one. I I will try uh, to to find answers to all of them. Um, let's start with the term critique of political economy. Of course, Marx is criticizing Adam Smith, David Ricardo, and other um, economists of um, not of his times, also of uh, older times. This is uh, the usual scientific business. Uh, whoever who, who is preparing a PhD has to criticize some persons in order to make clear that now my dissertation is necessary. If Marx would call only this to, to criticize some other guys um, as critique of political economy, it would be an enormous exaggeration. Marx wanted to criticize not only certain persons, not only certain uh, theories, he wanted to criticize a whole science, meaning the basics of the science, meaning what is taken for granted, even from very different theoretical approaches. This he wanted to criticize. And in so far, I think it is not by accident that this title, Critique of Political Economy, uh, he chose that it sounds rather uh, similar to a famous uh, philosophical title from Immanuel Kant, Critique of Pure Reason. And also Kant tried to uh, criticize the, the core of, philosoph of philosophy of his times, what was metaphysics. 
And in the same way, Marx wants to criticize this uh, uh, existing economic science of his times. I try to reconstruct what what was Marx doing? What, what does this mean to, to criticize a whole uh, science? And I, I argued that the, um, uh, the theoretical field of as well classical political economy as well as the modern neoclassical uh, theory, that they include four um, main elements. It is anthropologism, um, meaning they have an idea about the essence of humans. What is the essence of of man? Uh, They have a, a kind of methodological individualism, starting with the rational individual. They think they can they can construct the whole uh, economic, the whole society. Um, they uh, uh, are bound to empiricism, not only to empirical research, what also Marx was doing, but to empiricism. And with this, I mean the belief that the reality is very transparent. When you just look very closely, when you pay attention, you can see everything. And the fourth uh, element is ahistoricism. Of course, uh, bourgeois economics knows that there is a history, but they identify a basic uh, structure of the economic problem, which holds in in uh, during all the times, and this basic structure, for example, Adam Smith argued the difference between um, animals and humans is that uh, humans um, exchange commodities. So commodity production was transformed in a human uh, attribute. That's Um, so dark. And made transhistorical. Yeah, transhistorical. And so they they argue we have this transhistorical structure. Mankind, humans found different answers to this, but there is only one correct answer, and this is market and capital. And in so far... Ahistoricism. And Marx criticized the anthropologism, the, the idea of a human nature, of a human essence in German ideology. The ahistoricism he criticized from the beginning. I think this was an Hegelian heritage that he uh, didn't believe uh, such uh, stupidity. The methodological individualism. He only overcame in Grundrisse. In in the 1840s, there were there are also um, elements of this methodological um, individualism in Marx. And finally, empiricism. He also overcame, I think, mainly in the introduction of 1857. So to do this critic. It, it didn't happen in one moment or in one text. It need uh, a transitional period. Um, 
However, and this I, I try also to show in, in my book, Science of Value, nevertheless, that Marx formulated this very basic critic, still he was touched by the old theoretical field of political economy. And this produced a lot of ambivalences, ambiguities in his own approach. For example, the famous uh, transformation problem I tried to show as caused by uh, these ambivalences that you have a new discourse about value, but in the transformation problem, in, in the formulation he gave it in, the, in volume three of Capital, Marx had a relapse to the theoretical field of Ricardo. Mm. He tries to reformulate a Ricardian problem, not uh, being fully aware that in his new approach, this is absolutely not necessary. This new approach, and here I come to one of your sub-questions about uh, labor theory of value, his new approach, which is described from many persons as labor theory of value, a term, by the way, Marx never used. He never used the term labor theory of value. But what he is, he only used the term value theory. And what he is doing, he's criticizing the value theory of Smith and Ricardo, exactly in this point that he says they don't really understand the connection between value and labor. So what he was mainly doing is criticizing the existing uh, labor theories of value and what he um, brought as something new in is what I call, this is not a term of, of Marx, um, the, the term was coined later, what I call monetary value theory. And this monetary value theory you can see very nicely already in the theories of uh, surplus value, where Marx was criticizing Ricardo. That, and, and Marx argued, yeah, Ricardo sees uh, labor as uh, the core of value, but he cannot, he, Ricardo, cannot understand that this labor has to represent it as a kind of Universe, universality, and this happens only in money. And in so far, the big deficit of Ricardo's labor theory of value is not to understand the connection between labor, money, and value. And Marx claimed that he can present this. When he would have uh, stayed uh, um, with all the consequences to this, some problems in capital, like, for example, the, the famous transformation problem, wouldn't appear. But I think it is, um, for one person, it is too much to expect to do this scientific revolution and on, in the same process to draw all the consequences without any ambiguities, without any ambivalences. These ambivalences, they are interesting not just to do a job of a historian of science. These ambivalences, I think they are responsible 
for a lot of discussions and clashes among Marxists. The one uh, takes this sentence, the other takes that sentence, then they count how many quotes I can find mm -hmm. in order to, under, to, to support my position, as it would be a football game, and five against two, then I'm the winner. Right. This is nonsense. And grabbing from, from, one, from one section and one time and grabbing from another and trying to reconstruct an argument that way. Yeah, but it's not only uh, different times. The ambiguities in capital, sometimes you can find in the same sentence, mm. in the same paragraph. It is, uh, Marx had this scientific revolution, but at the same time, he, wa his, he was still gluing to the kind of problem formulation of the classical economists. The same, by the way, you can find at Galileo Galilei, uh, who also uh, is seen as the big revolutionary um, person in physics. But when you check his writings, they are full of medieval old, uh, um, old physics. But we have to do this job. We have to do a critical reading, not just a reading which admires Marx and says, oh, wonderful quote, wonderful sentence. No, we have exactly to do this, what Marx uh, asked for in, in the preface of uh, volume one at the end. He wrote, now I have uh, only the German sentence in mind, jedes Urteil wissenschaftlicher Kritik ist mir willkommen. Each judgment of scientific critique is welcome. Mm. And this was serious because Marx was clear that he is not producing a kind of eternal worldview. He was producing science, and science goes forward by critique, and he expected critique. And one of the tragedies of his life was that he received too less critic on a level which was his own level. This started only after, uh, after his death. This will also be an, an, an issue in my biography. Your biography is excellent, by the way. I read the first volume uh, during the pandemic, <laughs> and it was really incredible. I recommend it for anybody. Um, let's bracket to the side for one moment the idea of worldview Marxism or a Marxism that arises um, in the 19th and early 20th century that doesn't do justice, perhaps, to the, the mature critique of Marx. Um, I think it's important for us, what, what is this scientific revolution? What is value? What is it that, that Marx found and what are the implications of it? What Marx stressed was that value is a purely social phenomenon. In the whole classics, as well in neoclassics, they try to find a kind of natural basis of value. Um, concrete labor or the neoclassical theory in the psychology, in some natural psychological structures of, of human uh, mind. And Marx stressed the purely social character of labor. And this has enormous consequences. One consequence, 
which is debated among Marxists uh, since 100 years, for example, is the question, is labor, uh, is, is value already determined in production or do you need capitalist production and capitalist exchange? And when you uh, think value is already determined in production, you exactly fall in this naturalistic trap. Because production, of course, production, spending labor, is a necessity for um, the whole human history. You, you always, you have to do this. But uh, capitalist production, producing not only use value, but uh, also value and then also uh, surplus value is something very special, what you cannot reduce to this very general uh, natural um, um, elements. And this Marx was stressing and was investigating in different um, directions in the direction I already mentioned, monetary theory of value, but also in the direction of fetishism. Mm -hmm. Fetishism, by the way, I, I explained before, the four elements of um, the theoretical field of classics, and I mentioned empiricism. Fetishism, in some respect, you can read as the critique of empiricism. The, the reality is not transparent. It is not enough to have a close look to, to pay attention. You have to overcome fetishism. And this needs um, a kind of notional, or in, I, I use the German word, begriffliche Anstrengung, working with notions. Mm. And uh, doing more than, than only empirical uh, research. And um, in so far, from starting from value, you can um, um, you can see a whole new um, perspective on social reality. And of course, also when you want to change social reality, when you are not satisfied with capitalism. When you want to abolish capitalism, and this includes not only to, to abolish capitalists, capitalist um, enterprises, but in my view also capitalist markets or the dominance of markets, then you must know what this value, value form and so on is. And in so far, it's the key on the one hand to understand capitalism, and on the other hand, to understand what is necessary, what enormous um, efforts are necessary to overcome capitalism. Right. I feel like we almost learn value wrong when we first study Marxism 101, perhaps for simplicity's sake, perhaps just to make a slam dunk argument, you know, labor creates all value, workers perform the labor, therefore the workers are entitled to the things that they create and they should own the means of production. Right. But it's, uh, it turns out it's a little more complicated than that. Um, 
I, I think maybe this also points back towards the because right because value is something that only exists in capitalist society, right? And we've had human societies and we've had labor since before capitalism, as we all know. Um, so obviously there's uh, something more going on there. Um, and I think it also points back to the transformation problem, right? To say, I don't know, some, some bourgeois economists saying, all right, guys, you've got your Marxist theory. You've got your Marxist theory of, of value and of social relationships. If this can't perfectly explain what's going on in the market economy, the thing that we measure, the thing that we put on television every day in the bourgeois press, like what val what good is it to anyone, you know, and, and may maybe the transformation problem isn't such a problem if we don't uh, if we don't claim that Marxism can predict every single aspect of uh, a, a capitalist market economy. I guess that's is that a question you can you can take that any way that you like. Um, um, I guess this maybe points towards the some conversations we're going to have later on the falling right of profit and Marxist economics in general, the Sweezy school and the attempt to try to prove Marxism through neoclassical methods, especially after the Second World War. There was a big attempt, right, to try to reconcile. Mm, okay, you you raised um, several points, uh, diff several different points. Uh, before coming to to this last point, let me do short remarks. Uh, you said value exists only in capitalist uh, societies or in capitalist economies. I wouldn't uh, fully agree to this. You can find, of course, certain traces of value of commodity also in pre-capitalist societies. In, in ancient Greek, you had markets, you, you had loans and, and so on. What is specific for uh, the capitalist society is the generalization of commodity production, of value and the domination of value. In pre-capitalist societies, you have value, but not as the dominating uh, thing. Yeah. This, I, yeah. I think, yeah, that, so, sorry, that makes a lot of sense. I was thinking about like hunter-gatherer societies and whatnot. I, I didn't understand. I, I was thinking about like hunter-gatherer societies, like the, the majority of prehistory. Yeah, okay, but it's not only the the hunters uh, and the capitalist society. There is a lot in between, and I there know. you have this um, this but I stress elements of value because. Um, bourgeois economists, when they find such an element, they say, oh, yes, we, we have commodity, we have money, we have capital. So capitalism exists in all times. This is wrong. For example, you, f you can find some coins, but the ancient coins are rather different from modern money. It's a, there is a, an important form difference. Okay, but this is a, a, a more historical thing. The other point, what you said uh, at the beginning, that uh, what we learn about value very um, early is something else than that what we can learn from Marx. This is correct. We, we learn uh, to see value and money as given realities. And this is also one aspect what is important in Marx, that he doesn't accept this given reality and gives a different explanation. No, he asks, what are the conditions 
for the possibility of this uh, reality. For example, when you look in a, a bourgeois textbook of economics, what do they write about money? They start usually at once with the three main money functions, measure of value, means of circulation, um, storage of, of value. Also, Marx uh, considers these functions, but only in chapter three in Capital. Before he was considering the money form, not forms of money, the money form as a certain value form. In chapter two, money as the result of action of, of persons, and only then he came to the money functions. And this shows that he has a, a very different access to, to reality, to the analysis of, um, of reality. And in so far, um, also, this we have to, to have in mind. He tries not just to give different answers to the questions of bourgeois economics. He tries to formulate different questions, to criticize the questions. And when a bourgeois economic, economist says, yeah, we have this transformation problem, and uh, we are working with uh, prices, but Marx from his uh, strange value theory cannot find a way to, to the prices. So what, what, what shall we do with it? Then it, this consideration misses totally what Marx was trying to do. He was not trying to find uh, the correct price relations. He was trying to, to find the, the, the constitutions of form, of the price form, of the money form, of the capital form. And even in, in chapter, in, in, uh, in, in volume one of capital, he stresses that the prices, the oscillation of prices and the average price is not the same as value. So you, you don't need the transformation problem in order to see Marx is doing something else. And then we have to discuss this something else. Is this useful? Is this uh, insightful or not? But when you, on the side of, of bourgeois economic, e economists, just impose the bourgeois questions, and then you are surprised that Marx give, didn't give you answer to, to these questions. Okay, these were not his questions. But also I would criticize Marxists who want to show, oh, uh, Marx economic theory is better than the bourgeois economic theory. This is also not, it, there is not a direct competition. Marx is doing something else. And I, I, I would say, it's much better that he's doing something else, but you cannot compare uh, an apple with an orange and say, oh, what is the better thing? No, they are very different things. Yeah. Oh, God, you're giving me all sorts of flashbacks to uh, my decision to leave. Well, it's basically a liberal show and like how glad I am <laughs> that I did that. 
right? Because I really was in direct conflict with a lot of bourgeois theoreticians. And like, I didn't need to be doing that. Like, like you said, apples and oranges. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think we, we have, of course, to criticize um, bourgeois economics or bourgeois uh, sociologists or bourgeois politicians. But there is a difference in, in critic. I can have a critic when I, when I have a, a common field and then my critic uh, aims to make it better in this field. And when we come from Marx, when we really want to overcome uh, capitalism, then the aim of our critique cannot be to make it better than the capitalists or the, the capitalist politicians. We, our aim should be to show that what they do in their field is necessarily limited and in order to, uh, to have a human life which uses all the po possibilities of human life, we have to choose another field or what we see in, in the moment uh, regarding uh, the climate catastrophe and, and similar things, that capitalism and, and the politics uh, supporting capitalism simply kills. And when we want to avoid this killing, we must not look for better capitalist solutions, we must look for alternatives for, for a, a different uh, framework. Yeah. Let's uh, 100%. Yeah, of course we agree that 100%. The um let's turn let's turn the guns maybe on ourselves a little bit. Um because we've been doing good critiquing uh the bourgeois economists and bourgeois ideology. But um since the 60s and 70s a whole new world of scholarship has opened up about Marx and Marxism as a lot of documents have were found for the first time published for the first time and also a new critical uh, analysis of of Marx arose, which I, you were part of. You said you studied in the in the seventies as a as a young pupil. Uh, a lot of the the previous readings and received wisdoms of Marx uh, and his project were kind of overturned at that point. So, how has our understanding of um, Marx of this project changed in recent decades? And also, what is worldview Marxism, as we call it, and how does it differ from Marx's life work? Okay, worldview Marxism tries to, um, to, to construct, to compose a kind of closed um, view on the world where basically all questions are, are solved, um, where um, you, you reached uh, some kind of uh, eternal truth in, in every uh, field. This process started already in, in, 19th, in late uh, 19th uh, century. On the other hand, what you mentioned first, that uh, since the 60s we have new uh, writings of Marx. This is wrong. It, this process didn't start in the 60s. Mm. It started already after Marx's death. When you think about how less Marx published in his lifetime uh, compared with the, the um, manuscripts which, are, which nowadays in discussion, we discuss about alienation, 
uh, using the manuscripts of 1844, not published in Marx's lifetime. We discuss German ideology, not published in Marx's lifetime. We discuss about Grundrisse, not published. We discussed about uh, theories of surplus value, not published. And volume two and three published by Engels after Marx's death. So you have, in when you look uh, on this history, you can say after Marx's death, every generation of readers and researchers saw a different Marx. The, the 30 years after Marx's death, Capital Volume Two and Three of um, Volume Three, Volume Two and Three of Capital were published. Then uh, theories of surplus value at the beginning of um, nineteen of, of 20th century. It seemed now Marx's economic analysis is complete. In the 20s, the publication of the so-called early writings started and people say oh this is a totally new marx not so economistic not so such a determinism and uh, the discussion about the young marx and the old marx um, started in 1939 grundrisse were published but because of the second world war not uh, um, perceived The, the discussion about Grundrisse started only in, in Germany in the 60s, in, in the English-speaking world, I think, in the 70s, after the, the translation. And now people said, oh, this is a kind of missing link between the young and the old Marx. Then what you probably had in mind, uh, 60s, 70s, the second mega Marx-Engels Gesamtausgabe started. And in the 90s and in the early zero years, we had for the first time the original manuscripts of volume two and three of Capital. And we could see that Engels intervened rather heavily in the text with best intentions. But sometimes um, he, he did decisions you can question. But now we have the original texts. And what is now, the, the mega is not complete. What now will come, and it started, are Marx's excerpts, from which we can see how he worked with his sources, what was his learning process, what took he into account, and also what didn't took he in, into account. For example, Just to, uh, to give this, I was checking everything I can find if Marx had knowledge about the Haitian revolution. Mm. There is no indication that he had really knowledge about this. Mm. There were publications. It was not a secret. But Marx never mentioned uh, Haitian revolution. And You cannot prove that he read a book where it was mentioned. Mm. So this is also very interesting, not only to what he had access, but also to what he didn't have access. And this is uh, an, an, um, a theme which now you can discuss when you have all his notebooks and, and uh, excerpts. So since 100 30 years, you can say we have the 
the process, we discover new, uh, or not, it's not a, a kind of discovery, the, the manuscripts are there, but new manuscripts are published and they change our um, view of Marx. But there is also another point we have to take into consideration. When we discuss Marx, maybe we have the idea it's only us and Marx uh, who play a role. I read Marx, I understand this or that, um, and I, I publish something about it. But of course, this is nonsense. My thinking about Marx, like your thinking about Marx, is influenced by the contemporary discussions, by the contemporary critiques, even when you don't um, react immediately to these critiques or discussions, you are influenced. And for example, this is point back to, to labor theory of value. Uh, briefly after Marx published volume one of Capital, the so-called marginalist revolution started in um, economics, bringing all these uh, terms, marginal utility, marginal productivity, uh, introducing the differential calculus in economics, and so on. In this marginalist revolution, it was said, now we have a completely new economic theory. There is the old theory of uh, production-oriented labor theory of value, and we have a new theory um, oriented to the action of the consumers and the utility. And Marx, who was a critic of classical po political economy, was put in the same box with Adam Smith and, uh, and David Ricardo. And the Marxists defended against the utility theories. And the, the point that Marx was a critic of uh, um, labor theory of value was neglected. It was only a fight between labor theory and utility theory. And so when you look to the last 130 years, you have on the one hand the changing Marx. Marx is his writings and the, what the, the access to, to his writings changed several times considerably. And you have a Marx in conflict, a Marx under question, and this also changed considerably. And of course, this, this background, you had new developments. I cannot tell about the whole uh, of this history. You, you asked for the latest developments. And I would say one development is a devastating critique of any kind of worldview Marxism, which wants to present a closed worldview, a last stage of human knowledge, and so on. Marx neither claimed this, you know his famous sentence, je ne suis pas Marxist, I'm not a Marxist, uh, nor he delivered this. He delivered a very fragmentary work, and we must deal with the fragments and not uh, um, behaving as if there is a big system which uh, comprehends uh, everything. 
The next thing which I think is also important, Marx and his sources. In, in Marxist discussions, for a long time, Marx's own judgments prevailed. When a Marxist uh, discussed about Adam Smith and David Ricardo, he or she um, repeated the judgments of Marx with Smith and Ricardo. When you were talking about Bruno Bauer or Max Stirner, it was repeated what Marx and Engels wrote in, in yeah. German ideology. Yeah, I just read uh, State and Revolution and Lenin did pretty much the exact same thing there. You, I, I didn't understand, you read? In, in, in the, the State and Revolution by Lenin? He did, ah, yeah, Lenin. He, it's, yeah. it's like mostly quotes, mostly quotes from Marx and Engels. Mm. Yeah, quotes. Okay, I also quote. It is it is not bad to bring quotes, but the po the point is, what do you want to do with the quotes? And the construction with Lenin, and he's not the first. He's in in this. He's really in the tradition of the second international. The quotes served to to construct something complete. And um, now, what I wanted to to stress uh, that we have to look in a different way to Marx's sources, not just to repeat Marx's estimations, appreciations, judgments. No, we have to look to Stirner, Bauer, and, and all the others as thinkers of their own, having a certain relation with Marx. And then we can evaluate this, um, this relation. This is also a point I'm, I'm occupied um, in my biography. And I suppose when I will come to the question of uh, anarchism, especially to Bakunin's relation to Marx in, in the 60s and early 70s, um, I suppose as well the Marxists as well the anarchists um, will, will beat me, will, will not like uh, what I uh, will write, because on both sides is a tradition to appreciate the own hero. The Marxists appreciate Marx, who is always right against Bakunin. The anarchists appreciate Bakunin, who is always right against Marx. But both uh, pictures are just nonsense. The, the relation is much more complicated. It is, a, uh, on the one hand, a personal relation with all the stupidities of personal relations of... Um, um, oh, now I missed them. Okay, you, you know what I... What e I egotism mean, what, what and machismo and all that. The personal relationships of dudes. Yeah. <laughs> And there is also um, uh, differences in, in political tactics. There are differences in theory, which are maybe not so big, but all this mix mixture of, of elements, they produce something which you cannot solve in an easy way, that the one guy is always right and the other guy is always wrong. And there are much more of, of these things. And now that we have more sources of Marx and also more sources uh, uh, from 19th century about other persons, other discussions, 
we can really see what happened in a new way. And in so far, uh, my expectation is that in in the 21st century, we will get a near, almost completely new view on Marx. It started already, but uh, we are not at the end of this uh, journey. We kind of have to put uh, capital M Marxism someplace then. Maybe put it to bed or uh, Marxism with a capital M. Yeah, yeah. this is reminding me of something that, um, that Joshua Clover said to us that was a little controversial with some of my friends when he said it's more important to be a communist than a Marxist. The, the problem with Marxism is... Um, that it is not clear what it means. You can say, or let me say it in a, in a different way. You have Marxism as a system which already started in the German social democracy with Karl Kautsky and uh, such guys. Then it came Marxism, Leninism, and so on. This is a, a system or the, the attempt to, to produce such a system, it has a lot of intellectual failures and politically it leads to uh, the most awful uh, dictatorships, to, to most awful um, suppression. Um, it was not the... Um, uh, now I, I, I miss the English terms, um, where what Marx uh, wrote in the inaugural address, uh, die Befreiung der Arbeiterklasse muss das Werk der Arbeiterklasse sein. Um, the freeing, setting free of the working class must be the work or the job of the working class. Right. And this means not only, uh, this is not only important for the fight, it is also important for the system after revolution. And this we, we never had in, in these uh, systems of Marxism-Leninism. So this Marxism in this strong sense, uh, I think is a failure. And here we have to be very orthodox, following Marx, je ne suis pas Marxist, I'm not a Marxist. Of course, there is a very loose notion where you can say, okay, like for me, Marx is the most important theoretical for in, in my life, in my work. And in so far, I can say, yes, I'm a Marxist. I'm not a, a Ricardian, I'm a Marxist. But then we also have to admit, Stalin was also a Marxist. Mm -hmm. Pol Pot was also a Marxist. Mm -hmm. So when you use Marxism in this way, you cannot exclude and say, oh, I'm the true Marxist and Stalin is the, the wrong Marxist. Then you must accept that everybody for whom Marx is important is a Marxist. In so far, uh, I think it is a, a kind of not very productive discussion do we have a Marxism? Can we reconstruct a Marxism? What is the true Marxism? I think, forget it. Let's analyze capitalism using Marx. 
And let's discuss about communism. What means communism? And uh, that communism means something different from Soviet Union. This, this is important. Uh, and these, I think, are, are productive uh, discussions. Let's, uh, as we kind of wind things down, and we're going to do a uh, bonus after this for patrons of the show, but as we kind of wind it down, let's have that discussion. What, um, what is it from your, what follows from your work in understanding the value form, understanding Marx's mature pr- uh, critique of political economy? What follows uh, politically from that? What can it tell us about communism and the fight for communism? Okay, these, these are two different questions to tell about communism, to tell about the fight for communism. The fight uh, depends on very concrete uh, conditions, situations. They change with the society, they change uh, with the time. And um, I don't claim that I can give you a kind of guideline how you should fight in the U.S. uh, for communism. But what I can say or what I can contribute is the discussion what would be a communist mode of production. And here, very clearly, I would say it cannot be a kind of market socialism. I think it it is a strong uh, tendency in the left to say, yes, of course, we are against uh, capitalism, but market is not so bad. When we can purify markets from capital, then they are a nice institution. Here I would say on a, on a um, scientific level, it's a very deficient analysis of markets. And Marx, especially in a chapter he omitted in capital, transition from money to to capital, stressed that a full market must be a capitalist market. You cannot have a a full developed market without uh, capitalism. But also you can uh, argue on a more political, more empirical level that markets, even when they start not with capitalist uh, enterprises, they... Um, tend to increase inequality. Market is a kind of deadly competition. You will have winners and losers. And what happens with with the losers? What happens with the winners? So um, I think market socialism in the long run um, will reproduce all the old problems. Um, Something like market uh, socialism, maybe it could be a a very, very short transitional period when you imagine after a crisis, capitalism is overcome. Okay, then you need time to, to construct something like communism. And maybe in this time, you need some some market structures because you don't have anything else. But then the aim must be not to prolong this transitional period, but to make it as short as possible. This would be one, one consequence. And I think in, in this I'm, this is not very new. This is also Marx. When you read the critique of uh, the Gotha program, when you um, also read uh, Engels' anti-during, it is, everything is anti-market. Um, 
Another thing is the state. Also, this is not new. The state as an as a, a, a power beyond society has to uh, to vanish. Uh, also, I, I mentioned the anarchists before. There is not a uh, a fundamental difference between anarchists and and Marx about the state. Of course, the state has to disappear. There was uh, more a difference about can we just abolish the state in an act or needs does this need more? But the aim was clear. Um, in so far, I think I can contribute uh, to the discussion, what is communism, where I have to admit uh, these contributions are not very original. It's not me. It is more an interpretation of Marx. Uh, what can we take from Marx uh, about, um, uh, about communism? Regarding the fight for communism or the class struggle uh, as such, I think there is also something to contribute from the analyze, analysis of, um, of capital of, of Marx's writings. Uh, there are also some ambivalences. For example, when you remember the last paragraphs of um, the section on the so-called primitive accumulation at the end of capital. Marx, Maybe not right now. <laughs> What? She's doing I'm her work. I'm reading that right now in my capital reading group. <laughs> yes. Okay. Then uh, a hint. It's a wrong translation, primitive uh, accumulation. You must oh, use yeah. original accumulation. Primitive. Marx didn't use primitive. It, it has uh, a, a, it's a. It's a different. There, okay. This is another good, point. Good to know. <laughs> there are a lot of translation problems in English capital. Also, with, with value theory, this I forgot to mention before, um, embodied labor is nonsense. Marx speak of labor which is represented but never embodied. So the translation can lead you already in, in a wrong direction. Hi. But what I wanted to, to say... We all have is, to learn uh, German now, geez. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, <laughs> This is in, in every, when, when you really want to do scientific work about an uh, author of another country, you have to learn the, uh, the language. Um, you cannot talk about Marcel Proust when, when you don't uh, read uh, French. Uh, you cannot uh, talk about Gramsci when, when you don't know a little bit at least Italian. Um, Okay, but to come back to this point, um, the fight for communism, class struggle, and so on. In these last paragraphs of um, primitive original accumulation at the end of volume one, Marx argues that uh, the capitalist factories become bigger and bigger, the working class in these big, big factories are educated in class struggle and the, they become more and more angry, more and more ready to fight. And one day they will expropriate the expropriation 
Priya terms. When you go back around 20 pages, 30 pages, you will find also a famous uh, quote where Marx speaks about the silent power or the mute uh, power of capital. That in the beginning, when, when capitalism emerged, state power was necessary to suppress the working class, to, to bring them in the working houses. But when the, the capitalism um, evolves, the workers start to accept the capitalist conditions as natural conditions. And the state power for oppression is only used in extraordinary situations. So only 30 pages between, you have on the one hand the, the proposition that with the evolving capitalism, the working class tends to accept capitalist conditions as natural, and then just the opposite, that um, the, the working class will learn by the capitalist uh, uh, companies to fight against capitalism and to overcome capitalism. The problem is not that you have these two propositions. Both are true. Both you can find. The problem is that Marx didn't connect them to, to each other. And then in the Marxist discussions, the one group related to the one proposition, the other group related to or relied uh, to, to the other proposition. Uh, what is my consequence, and I, I draw it already in, in my introduction to the three volumes of Capital in, in um, chapter 10, that we can speak of classes, we can speak of class consciousness, and even of revolutionary class consciousness, but there is not a, necessar a necessity of development. Mm. You cannot expect you have a, a working class, and this working class must develop class consciousness. There is no necessity. Uh, maybe some rudiments are developed, but okay. And when you have class consciousness, the understanding we belong to one class and we are opposed to another class. This means not automatically revolutionary class consciousness. This can also mean, okay, and now in the given society, we have to defend our position. It is the basis for every reformist uh, policies. So all these, all these assumed automatic processes we have to to criticize and this i think is something we have to to have in mind in in our fights yeah you know i understand why that makes some people angry right <laughs> because like we're trying to do something very very difficult we kind of have to psych ourselves up and if we are able to believe that this is a historical inevitability we just have to do steps one through seven, then that makes it a little bit easier for people to wrap their minds around this, the crazy thing that they're devoting their lives to, you know? I totally agree. 
I I see it exactly uh, like you described, but we have to to be strong, and this means maybe we we fight our lifetime, and we fail, and not only we fail. Also, the next generation will fail. There is no guarantee for um, a final success. And a lot of Marxists uh, try to find such a guarantee either in a, in a theory of capitalist collapse, saying, okay, maybe we are defeated, but at the end also our enemy will fall. Hmm. No, there is no guarantee. Also, uh, this uh, famous law of the profit rate um, to to oh. fall, it is also something I it is defended fiercely by by a lot of Marxists, uh, and I think uh, the background is it gives them a kind of security. There is a kind of inner tendency. History is on our side in in the last instance. But this is nonsense. Even if this law would be correct, it wouldn't help anything. If, let us say, the profit rate will diminish in 100 years by half a percent, so what? This would have no, no influence. If the profit rate would diminish in in five years by 20 percent of course this had uh, uh, an effect but for this we don't need a law this is an empirical fact which can happen or or cannot happen Um, but this the defense of this law i think rests exactly in in what you said uh, that it is so bad when we fight and don't know if at the end there is a success, at least for our children or our grandchildren. Yeah. Powerful well, words. Seriously. Uh, we just got to do it anyway, as we often say here on the Antifada, do I, the thing. Do the and thing. at least, even if we fail, at least we can say that we tried. Exactly. Um, I would say this is, this is also in, an important point. Um, when we only look to the possible result, then maybe we shouldn't start. The risks are big. The, the success is absolutely not sure. Okay, why not do a bourgeois career when you only fix to, to the result? Only when you recognize that life, a life in, in which you try to to have a different practice, to to have different relations to persons, not coined by by competition, not coined by a bourgeois career, that the fight for something, you cannot only measure by the result, but also by the process, what what abilities you you develop, what experiences you you can make. Only then, I think, you can have... uh, the energy, the power to to continue something. And uh, the result, of course, would be nice. But even if I don't have the result, uh, at least I I want to try it and make the experiences, the encounters, which I can do in this process. 
Hundred um, percent. This, I think, will—it's a wonderful way to conclu- conclude our main episode. I'm not sure how Andy's going to edit this, but we might have transitioned into the, into the bonus already. If we haven't, you and know what? You want we'll more? Figure it out. We'll figure it out. If you want more of this content, you know to go to uh, Patreon.com/slash/TheAntifada. Become a patron today. So, with that said, let's take it to the bonus. Um, Hell yeah! It's a dead world. It's about that time to clear things here. One generation follows another, but something in my head says, keep going, don't give up. Cold red, running down my back, I don't feel the chaos. The reason to fight is not making a stronger man, cause they don't understand. I won't come down, I won't come down. What am I supposed to do? I try to realize that the time is running out.